got a great song to play next. Hello. Have you ever snubbed a lady? Um, we had a technical problem. Are we on? Yeah. We're on there. Can I swear? Welcome to another episode of Crunch and Roll, the podcast for people who know that hitting the vocal is a non-violent act and selling the new music doesn't involve any money changing hands and of course, there's not really a lucky line 97. Each week we speak to a shining light from the radio industry, past or present, and we cover topics from have you ever seen a ghost in the studio to whether or not you should really eat any food that a listener leaves you on reception. My name's John Fox, known to some as Foxy, done breakfast shows across the UK on commercial stations and more recently the BBC. So today's guest is Jonathan Miles, somebody who I have never had the pleasure to meet, but um, the chat with him was... An experience. I mean, he is just a wonderful character, just naturally very funny and an undisputed radio legend. And I talked to him about his love of Australian radio consultants, how he resigned to Parky face to face and why he had to flee Dubai in a hurry. It's a little bit sweary and there's some adult content as well. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Miles, how are you? Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. Not many people have. (laughs) <laughs> here we go here we go I love it Jonathan our paths have never crossed it's um, this is the first time we've ever spoken I've, I've ever seen you you're a, you're a beautiful man well you're uh, kind. The, the first question you asked me was what is my star sign is that important to you is it it's what I always do. It's a conversation starter, at least, you know, and uh, I know a tiny, weeny, ickle bit about astrology. And uh, I always go on, as people will tell you if you eventually know anybody I know, about retrograde Mercury, which, as we do this, is is about to happen, and it says everything haywire. Communications, uh, you need to dot the I's, cross the T's, don't travel during retrograde Mercury, Two presidential elections were done under retrograde Mercury. George Bush's one, and you know what happened there. I think Donald Trump's one, and you certainly know what's happened there. Yeah. So um, I, I bang on about bits of astrology that I basically know nothing about, but it amuses me. <laughs> you sound like you know what you're talking about, which is, is great. Thank now, you. Jonathan, I'm, I'm, look, as always, you know, I'm joined by a, 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 somebody who's got an incredible CV. You started at BFBS. Actually, I, I started in hospital radio in nine. 19- yeah. 1976, I think it was. There was a point one night, and I will always remember it, where I put two records together and I created an atmosphere. And I was like, oh, because for me, it's always been about, shall we say, the emotion. And I thought, oh, okay. And I didn't think much more about it. Anyway, I went to to Capital Radio as it was then in 19... May 1979, where I was a T-boy and I worked in Studio 4, which was the, uh, the place where we had bands in, because at the time... I don't know how old you are, John, but we used to have a restriction on needle time, so we couldn't play records all the time. So we used to have bands in to do covers. And I became a presenter there, but I was bloody awful in hindsight. And then I went to BFBS in 1989. You mean you worked with, with Chris Tarrant? Everybody talks about how good Chris Tarrant was on air. I mean, what were your experiences working with Mr Tarrant? He's lovely, and I think he still remembers me as wearing leather trousers, which I actually can't get into anymore. <laughs> Capital w- w- was... Oh, I don't know. What was it? I suppose we were all a bit uh, snobby, 
because of course it was only us and Radio One. I mean, there were other places I think which came, and I can't remember the chronology of where radio stations came. But when when outsiders came in, we were always a bit like, oh. And and I remember talking to an engineer or somebody at some point, and we went, "What the hell's this?" Because I think Chris started doing his shows in the Capitol foyer at Euston Tower. I think I'm right in saying that. And then, of course, the rest is legend, you know, and, and he's a lovely man. And I have to say his son's very attractive. Uh, straight, but attractive. Uh, um, so, you know, Chris was, was always great and, you know, chaotic. But I, as I left Capital in 1989, and I think it was after that that he really went whoosh. So as soon as you left, Jonathan, Chris Tarrant became successful, is what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was me. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I just remember it all being very chaotic. I mean, Capital was full of disc jockeys at that time. I mean, there were so many. When I'd first started, there was there was the lineup, which is, you know, I think uh, quite a classic lineup. And then it, it, in the 80s, it kind of... Seemed like everybody was on the air, um, but those were golden times. And, and then you moved to moved to Germany for BFBS. Yeah, I, I think somebody must have told me to say basically, um, if you want to get good, you need to leave uh, Capital. And so I wanted to be a disc jockey. I wasn't going to go any further because I was doing all the live work at Capital. You know, I was going out on the on the Capital rig as it became, and I was doing all the the warm ups for Pat Sharp, Mick Brown, David Hamilton, Tarrant, and I went out in my own right ultimately as well. But to get any better as a radio presenter, not that I knew how to do that. I had to leave. And so, yeah, I, I I got a job at the same time, I think I'm right in saying, as Clive Warren. And um, he went to Cyprus and I went to Germany. And I was like, I remember sitting in this place one day going, and it was January 1989. I was like, what have I done? Because the rain was coming down. There was a tank on the forecourt. And I was just like, huh? I'm used to Kenny Everett coming down the stairs and 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 Bross being in. And here I am in Marienburg, which was uh, where the radio station was at the time. Um, and they'd taken me, I think, to REF Rheindahlen, which is a place I adored. I adored, ultimately. I didn't like it when I started. And I was like, oh, God, they're all in uniform and I'm terrified. I mean, I was 27, 28, so I should have been had more about me and been manly, but that's never happened, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, must, it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're going to move abroad, that's, that's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? I, I, in hindsight, it is. I mean, I, the thing is, you know, if something's offered... Nominally, I just do it. And I don't think of the stuff. I mean, I wish I had thought of the stuff because, I mean, I remortgaged the flat that I'd bought in Hemel Hempstead to leave the country. I think I was in a modicum of debt at that point. And I went. And it was amazing. It gave me confidence. 
I grew as a presenter, I suppose, but I just remember being a bit of an arse, um, as I've been in several jobs, um, which I can say now, the grand old age of nearly 61. I, I was an arse because I was like, oh, darling, it's not like that in commercial radio. Oh, God, oh, no, darling, it's not like, no, I'm doing it this way. You know, so I, I, I was an arse. Um, but we had great times, amazing times. Um, and the Air Force took me under their wing and taught me how to drink. And just, you know, there was my, my friend Spike. There was the adorable Tony Ben. There was Ian Thickpenny. <laughs> I remember I was, at a, I was at a party once in the Singley's Airman's Block. Oof, get me. And I was at the end of the corridor. There was an open window. And I didn't know about drinking particularly. I'd only had a few gins. And he's like, and I, and I, I looked at this bottle. He went, this is my friend Jack. Drink it or wear it. <laughs> and we went out. We went out. We were in a car. There was about three or four of us. And, and Ian Thickpenny, um, huge, built like a tank to me. And um, we st- he saw somebody bullying somebody else at a bus stop coming out of Randana. Stopped the car, got out, punched this bloke in the nose and gets back in the car. <laughs> and then we go into Mönchengladbach and I'm, you know, and I'm just like, OK, boys, look after me, look after me. And all there was was a trail of, this isn't Ian, by the way, but there was a trail of blood into this bar. I was, this was my life, you know. They, but, I mean, I, I, I love, I love the Air Force. They were so lovely to me, so lovely to me. Do you know, do you know what's interesting? Uh, we, we we kicked off this this podcast uh, Crunchyroll uh, chatting to Robin Banks and he admitted being a bit of an ass. And I think if I'm being honest, at times I've been a bit of an ass, and you've just said it there. Why do you think we're all assholes? <laughs> oh God! Well, you're a Scorpio, darling. So <laughs> you always know best. Pomposity, all that. You know what I mean? I think it's probably uh, insecurity, isn't it? Really. Um, I mean, I'm probably still like it now to a degree, you know, don't tell me what to do, darling. Um, I don't know, it, it, it's probably insecurity, you know, just to go, whatever, and just be zen about everything is not the easiest thing to do. And, and you know, a lot of disc jockeys, and I'm sure you've known many, as I have, you know, have quite large egos, but they're quite fragile underneath. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, and, and I think that, you know, and, and also it's growing. And I think as disc jockeys, possibly, we are grown up children. What would you say is your biggest ass moment, um, if you take that in the right way? <laughs> oh, um, no. Throughout your whole career, Jonathan. Your, your biggest diva strop, because we've all had them. I had several at BBC Newcastle where I just. Um, uh, I, I just couldn't cope with being with some situations that were communicating with me, so I'd strap out and slam the door in the newsroom. I'd never worked in a newsroom. Ugh. I think you know. I, I mean, I had in hindsight. I mean, I had great producers, but I wasn't used to being produced. I wasn't being. I wasn't used to being told what to do. You know, my my producer um, Jane Downs, um, who is lovely and 
and uh, and and she's Jane. Anyway, you know, she she she'd call me Johnny, and I was a bit like I was like. Mm-mm. Anyway, I let it go because it was her ultimately. But she'd like she'd be like, "Oh, you coming in the morning?" And you want to do euthanasia by 10. Where am I supposed to get the fucking guests for that? <laughs> I mean, rip or something along those lines. Uh, you know, because I would, I'd come in in the morning and in my naivety, I'd go, can't we talk about euthanasia? Because, you know, but, but of course, the bulk of the work on the show was done the previous day by them. But there was some stuff, because I, I did mid-mornings, which, of course, we did on the day. And... Um, and or I'd come back with an hour's worth of audio from something that was supposed to be four minutes about making sausages, and I'd have and I'd have found an interesting conversation thread that was interesting for me, and she'd have to edit it. And I will say publicly now, I am sorry, and I felt, and I now feel your pain because having done some interviews myself. I, I've edited my own interviews and it's taken me three or four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> now, BFBS, and we'll get on to Newcastle in a bit because that is uh, that, that's closer to, to today. But then you went to Piccadilly Key 103. I mean, I mean, am I right in thinking that you're wearing a Piccadilly Key 103 t-shirt? Mad for it, right? Yeah, I thought so, yeah. How do you go from being based in Germany to, to go to Manchester? BFBS didn't renew my contract. Probably because I was an ass. They, I think, wanted me to go to the Falklands. And I was like, oh, no, darling, I don't do that. <laughs> Stupid twat. <laughs> I mean, why didn't I just go to the Falklands and have a decent career with British Forces Broadcasting? Why didn't I do that? Because that's probably what would have happened. And said, no, no. I had to go, no, darling, I can't possibly do that. Um, so I was unemployed and I moved back to mum and dad's in Dartford and I rang my ex-partner, Keith Pringle, who started Heart and was the programme director along with the lovely Mark Story. Oh, John, John. And, <laughs> um, and I said, I'm out of work. What do I do? Anyway, uh, Keith said, oh, darling, come to Manchester. It probably wasn't as easy as that, but I went to Manchester and I did overnights and stayed on Keith's floor in Burnage. And I did overnights uh, on, on Piccadilly Key 103, as it was then, and, um, and loved it. And I just fell in love with Manchester. It was so good to me. I think I, I ultimately ended up depping for the lovely Spence McDonald, who's now on Happy Radio. And I, I did some daytime stuff. Do you know, I, so I, when I first started my professional career doing weekend overnights, and I always found that when you were presenting overnights, you could get away with murder, Jonathan. I mean, have you got any stories of, yes, you're nodding. So there, there are things that you wouldn't potentially get away with on breakfast or drive, but doing overnights, you can do it. I, I don't think I've ever gone out to shock. But, but for me, overnights, you could have a club feel, you know, and, and it just felt, Special. I mean, I know you were tired and all that kind of stuff, and and certainly when I did overnights at Invicta later on, you know, the same bleeding records had come up and in the in the in the one o'clock in the in, in at five o'clock, you know, but it it was that feeling of togetherness that you could have. Does that does that sound 
Yeah, absolutely. Rubbish. I'll get it. No, so I, I fully understand what you're saying. There's something about nighttime radio um, which is special. I th- when I was on Invicta, Ian Canfield, uh, as I say, he's a great broadcaster. He is an absolute talking head on everything, but he's, gr- he's a rock jock and he knows his stuff. But he will always recall, well, you doing the joke about the Pope wanking was not your best moment. <laughs> well, I need to hear the joke, Jonathan. I don't remember it. <laughs> but I cleaned it all up in my head. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and did it. And, and then realised after Ian texted me what I'd done. And, and I, I think I was very insecure for about three weeks thinking someone's going to come and get me because I didn't think see anything wrong with it at the time. <laughs> then, there goes any future career in broadcasting. He is not responsible. Well, you're probably right. Well, there's um, stuff testing, 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 testing. The does a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I'm all for being open-minded, but I'm not all for discussing this live on air. Thank you. We are profoundly uh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about Radio Luxembourg. What was your experience like on that? Um, well, I never felt that I was a bona fide Radio Luxembourg disc jockey. I mean, I was, and Tony Prince, God bless him, you know, always said, you know, you're part of the team. And, and so Tony was obviously part of the backbone of Radio Luxembourg. And I remember uh, listening to Stuart Henry on Radio 1 when I was a kid and thinking, wow, you sound great. You had that Scottish accent and it just sounded marvellous. I got to Radio Luxembourg because I was... Where was Luxie? Luxie was 92. And I rang Jeff Graham, uh, God rest his soul, and just said, hi, darling, um, have you got any work? And he's like, oh, come over, or something along those lines. And um, I drove over to Luxembourg, and it was in the most... Amazing building, RTL, had this huge glass structure and the English service, as it was called, had this immense studio. I mean, why did it need to be that big? Um, And I never really felt comfortable on the air there, whereas Chris Moyles, God bless him, of course, he didn't start there, but he, he reveres that time and that of course is where he you know whooshed himself and 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 played with him I was gonna say played with himself. Um I'm he, sure he did. <laughs> he's a poppet. He's a Pisces adorable. Um so I'm not gonna say that was his start. I can't remember where his start was but I know that, that he had to become Chris Holmes because I was Jonathan Miles and Chris Moyles, I think they thought, was too close together. And anyway, <laughs> it was such a weird setup. I was there, I think, for eight months. And of course, the satellite service had, uh, sorry, the AM service had finished. So we were only on satellite and shortwave around the world. So you never knew who was listening. It's not as if it was a big thing locally. And. Um, it was very difficult to quantify. Uh, And there we all were. You know, there was was Chris Moyles, Tony Adams, Wendy Lloyd, the legend that is Mike Hollis, and me. It was a weird time because I 
I ended up going bankrupt in Luxembourg. Somebody trashed my BMW in Luxembourg. And um, and that, that was it over eight months. We used to have a phone bank in front of us. We didn't get many phone calls, I don't think, but one girl would ring up from somewhere, Moscow probably, going, hello, 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 and that's all she'd do. Hello, 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 hello. And you go, oh. And and the record library was was obviously stunning. And at the end, they let us have our pick of the record library. And I... I took many things, including Harpo's Movie Star, which I've always loved, and um, and then I, when I left Newcastle, I thought I've got to get rid of my vinyl, a lot of which was, um, you know, harvested from when I was at Capital and 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 at Radio Luxembourg. So I sold it all to Stephanie Hurst, <laughs> all my oh, Luxembourg really? vinyl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She was so happy, so happy, because, again, she loves, and you know, Luxembourg so much. So many people do. Okay, so from Luxembourg in 92, uh, GWR, and then Key 103. So you went back to Key 103, and then Piccadilly, 11.52 a.m., and then Jazz FM as well. Tell me about your time at, I mean, that sounds great, Jonathan. Jazz, I mean, you were jazz fan John uh, John Beish bless him liked what I did on Key or 1152 thank you John John he said uh, come and do some freelance stuff and um, this was 97 98 it was it's 98 because that's right Dave fucking Shearer came in and fucking changed every fucking thing He's a Capricorn. I remember it well. And he is so lovely. He is so adorable. And I yeah. know he's in Australia now. Anyway, so Dave fucking Shearer, he sat me down. He went, Miles, you fucking talk too much. You're fucking going to fucking overnights. Sorry, everybody, for the S, but that's how it was. And I went, I'm fucking not. And he went, oh. I said, you can pay me off. And uh, anyway, they paid me off. And uh, I went back in the next week for lunch and Shearer was just fine. Uh, then John Bache called me and said, um, darling, darling, come and play with us for a while. Love it, love it. So I went and did Jazz FM and apparently terrified the traffic people or the traffic boy. Because I was like, well, you're cute, which is very me, you know. <laughs> I apologise to anybody I've ever terrified, but believe me, I am all talk. (laughs) Let's move to Dubai. So, um, I mean, you were there between 98 and 2001, and uh, was that a time when they were building the radio stations in Dubai, the English-speaking stations? No, they were were there. There was Dubai 92. Um, Channel 4, I think, was the first commercial one there. I... Yeah, I was at Jazz, and um, and a friend of mine was out there, Rick Horton, who used to yeah, be on yeah. Radio City. Oh, that's my Liverpool accent. Oh, I kissed him, but I didn't go with him. Um, it's appalling, I know. See anyone I've got. <laughs> I can't remember what happened. I probably rang Rick Horton or Nick Martin. I They were both out there. Um, and uh, I said... Uh, Help. Anyway, and then I get a call to say, can you go and meet Meki Abdullah, who I don't think is uh, any longer with us. And I had to go and meet him in Lancaster. And he went, oh, 
that's a job. You'll oh, come. Oh. I think he was Syrian or... No, he wasn't Syrian. Was he Syrian? Anyway, huge bear of, a, 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 of an Arab man. Lovely. And um, they employed me. And but the, but the bizarre thing was that in 1997, while I was still at uh, 11.52, um, I'd gone to see my friend Nick Martin on holiday in Dubai. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is this is interesting. And never thought I wanted to work there. The studio was a broom cupboard, and I was like, you know, why would I? I didn't think anything. Anyway, they let me do a show one day because they were, they were short-staffed. So Nick Martin is just like, don't say anything. You can't say alcohol. You can't talk about God. You can't... <laughs> You can't. So I was on the air. So I just went on the air and went, hello, darlings, here we are, or whatever I did. Uh, and I remember after the show, which was, I don't know, a couple of hours or whatever, Nick Martin went, never again. I told you, you're I was like, oh, love, you know what I'm like. Because people always, people say, and funnily enough, I, I was at a barbecue with uh, with a great friend of mine at the weekend. It was his 20th wedding anniversary. And um, his son was telling me to apply for BA Cabin Crew. Uh, and uh, and he said the magic words that a couple of people said every time. Oh, John, you'll have to tone it down. I'm like... How do you tone down? I can't do it. If you were at a funeral, it's a different matter. But I'm just who I am. Uh, so Nick is one of those people. Ugh, you'll have to tone it down. I'm like, what does that mean? But you eventually get a job in Dubai. A year later, you know, uh, Piccadilly 11.52 ended because I, I moved over from Key 103 because I was deemed too old. And um, did some jazz. And then, long story short, got a job in Dubai and arrived and was like, oh, I live here now. God, it's hot. And I, and I arrived September 98 and I left Easter 2001. And uh, when, when, I, when I eventually got back to the UK, I'd gone to see the doctor and he said, I suggest you stop drinking for three months. <laughs> Such was the alcohol that we had drunk during that time. It, again, it wasn't the easiest thing because there were local British presenters who lived there and, you know, etc. And we'd been brought in from the UK and there was a lot of backbiting and insecurity. And I, I, can, I am I allowed to say this about myself now? I don't know if I can. I was quite big and um, or I got quite big. And somebody, somebody said uh, there's two stars in Dubai. Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al uh, Al Rashid, God bless him, who has done amazing things for that country, and Jonathan Miles. That was 1999. <laughs> and what shows were you doing out there then, Jonathan? I did and, drive and, and, time. And did you tone it down? No, not really. <laughs> I, I don't think I knew what toning it down was. I, I I don't think I've ever known, to be frank. But when I started on the air. I thought I was going to be shot every time I opened my mouth because, you know, I always expected to be fired and I was fired ultimately. Um, but um, I, I, did I turn it down? No. I had, as I say, I had six weeks and um, I was obviously a bit popular, but it was around a time 
when things were expanding and they began Emirates 1 and 2, I think it was out there, and everybody left Channel 4, um, which was a radio station which went everywhere from an emirate called Ajman. Ajman? So you used to get in the taxi in Dubai and you'd say, Ajman. He's went, Ajman? And you'd say, yes, Ajman. Oh, Ajman. Okay. <laughs> so um, um, what was the question? I've forgotten. I, well, I, I'd asked if you'd toned it down. Oh, tone it I, down. I, no. <laughs> um, did I tell you that? No. Uh, that was my being an arse period, I think. I believed my own publicity to a degree, probably. And I was very naughty. I'd do things like, oh, don't don't shoot me, anybody, please. I'd be like, you know, I'd be on the air talking about dog. God. Uh, and uh, that last night I was out with my good friends, Gordon, Jack and Remy, because it was the only way one could talk about alcohol. So I invented these ways around it. Why did you get fired? From from Dubai, <laughs> from Dubai. Why did I get fired? Oh God, I'm making myself out to be some some shock jock, and I'm not. I'm just. I don't know. I just got a personality, and I ran with things, and I got away with some things, and I didn't get away with other things, and I and I think I've got. I think I had, and I think I've still got a lot of naivety, and I think having a bit of a camp persona allows you to get away with some things that straight people can't. It takes the edge off things. And so some Emirates air stewards got in touch with me and they said, we're having a gay a gay night. And I was like, love, we live in Dubai. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. The shake's fine about it. Dun, 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 got permissions. I was like, oh, okay. So I was on air surreptitiously promoting, because we had everybody listening from from six-year-old Indian children to 80-year-old crusty expats. I mean, we had a huge listener base. And so they wanted this gay night promoted, and uh, and I was very out on the air, you know, and camp. So I promoted it. I can't remember how I promoted it, but I promoted it. And then we went to this person's flat in um, Shakeside Road, and they were all dragging up. And I didn't have any drag, but I got into the spirit of it, as I do. I was like, oh, okay, fine. And they found me a wig and heels and whatever else. And we all then trooped out onto Sheikh Zayed Road. And the traffic just stopped. And they were like, what? And we, we get to this club and the night started. And there we all were in drag. There was no impropriety whatsoever. I can tell you that. Somebody interviewed me on camera because they wanted to promote the night to other countries like Singapore and bits and pieces. Anyway, I left early in my heels because um, I was knackered and I was on the air the next day and that was that. So I go into Channel 4 the next day, which was uh, Friday, and they went, oh, did you hear what happened last night? I was like, no. They went, oh, it was raided. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, was it? Oh. So it was raided. I said, and um, this six-foot-tall air steward, dressed in full Madonna, yeah. had rushed out, screaming, 
into the secret police's arms and was in prison. I was like, oh, my God, no. So that happened. And then uh, my boss said to me, uh, you need to lie low. I was like, oh. And I wasn't, like, terrified or anything. I was like, oh, heck. And then, uh, then my back went. I remember that distinctly. And um, then uh, we got... Somebody got me a free British Airways ticket and I went home for a week because I was ill and I brought my holiday forward. And then I was fired by email on Easter Sunday. I was the straw that broke the camel's back. Apparently, in their eyes, there had been all this impropriety, which there hadn't been. Somebody had taken their top off on the dance floor and was told to put it back on. Uh, apparently, there were rude videos. Well, there weren't. I was, I was interviewed on camera about you know, this night and bits and pieces, nothing like that. But, of course, rumour, 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 rumour. And um, apparently um, I was fired uh, because uh, one of the rumours was that I'd been sleeping with uh, a very prominent member of the royal family, which was all utter, utter, utter crap. You know, but but the Dubai rumour mill... And apparently some of them still talk about it now. (laughs) She's bonkers. (laughs) Absolutely bonkers. So I was fired while I was here... On Easter Sunday. And uh, and I think that actually, in hindsight, had quite a big effect on me. I think I, think I was fonder of it than I, than I uh, uh, realised. Um, and um, eventually I went to work at a call centre. Dubai call centre. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm guessing from, from previous stories that you've shared with us that... Um, to get your next gig, Jonathan, was a was a phone call made to a friend because there's been a lot of that, which I which I think just shows that there is a lot of love in the industry for you because you know I mean you mentioned Mark Story, you, you've mentioned some some people that I really admire. You called them and they gave you a job. So is that what happened next? Yes, <laughs> and, and it's very kind of you to say that. Very kind of you. I was in a call centre and oh, I hated it so much. I mean, I met some lovely people. It was um, it was peopled by actors and actresses and stage people who were unemployed and dressers um, and things like that. And so they were. It was fabulous. But we had to cold call people like Royal Mail and ask for the person who bought the toilet roll. I mean, it was for for, for Royal Mail. It was, oh, anyway. Um, and I, I think I made. I was just desperate. I'd, 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 I'd make up any excuse not to go there, which I, which only happened once. And I just remember walking around Hyde Park like a zombie, going, "Oh God, what, what am I going to do in my life? I can't, Jesus!" I can't. And um, for some reason, I called Michael Osborne, who was PD at Invicta at the time. And he said, uh, I've got three weeks' work. And I said, really? You want me to work for you? I said, I'm not 20 and I don't wear a backwards baseball cap. And he went, oh, don't be an arse. Just get your ass down to uh, Whitstable. Um, he doesn't talk like that. Well, he does a bit. <laughs> and, um, and so I was there from 2002 and I was on overnight. And then... I got the late show. Um, and it was a joy. I mean, I think, I think it was a joy, except for the consultants, rolls eyes. Um, <laughs> well, that's interesting you mentioned consultants because that is always a question I like to ask. 
the bad ones you've had? I mean, you don't need to name them, but the, the worst advice that they try and give you. At Invicta, we had two Australian bosses. One, Rebecca Trebojevic. Mate, you can't put white guitar next to a soul track. You can't do it, mate. Mate, you're not playing enough soul. You're not doing this. She was the most passionate woman. And she never took off her denim jacket. We thought she lived in it, literally. She never lived in it. And um, But she she was glorious. She, I think she was the one that gave me the late show. And then another guy came who was equally, it was lovely, but he's like, mate, I'm taking all the furniture away, which is what they do. Dirk Anthony, who I love, but he did the same thing at GWR. Mate, I'm taking all the furniture away. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what? What do you mean I can't? I can't say that. You've given me a ring binder with GWR, the better music mix. Oh, fuck off. Um, and he's... And, I, and can I just say, I love Dirk. He's a Libran. He's he's adorable. He's he's attractive. He's married, unfortunately. But anyway, um, but but you know, these people came in at a time. Uh, I think it, it, it was the nineties and, and obviously the two thousands. Australia kind of ruled the airwaves in England and ruined it completely, especially in London. And when GWR did their boardroom shenanigans and moved into capital or, or whatever they did, somebody there, well-renowned, who was one of the hand clappers on Queen's We Will Rock You, uh, he said it was the day the music died. And I don't know whether it's true, but apparently they used to take the middle eights out of songs and certainly all the rap, because it was no rap less crap. What was it? What was this tag? I can't remember what the tagline was. No rap less chat? Oh, it was trap. No, I thought it was crap. Uh, <laughs> Oh, God! So, you know, at Invicta, I had, I had two Australian bosses after, after Mike Osborne. And, um, and, and I always see those people as the consultants. And again, at, at GWR, there was, there was a guy, Bill Clements, and whoever his cohort was, they were Australian. They came in and, mate, mate, mate. And, um, and, uh, and they said to me, you, you're a vaudeville act, you are. You're a runaway train. I was like, yeah, they probably am. And in hindsight, I know exactly what they mean. In hindsight, it's only hindsight, I know exactly what they mean. But at the time, I was like, who the hell do you think you are? Because <laughs> I've been to Capital. I know best. Oh, shut up, Jonathan, you dick. Um, and this is what I mean. My mother, my mother said to me many years ago, she said, Capital ruined you because you started at the top. And I did, you know, and I did in terms of I was at Capital. I mean, it was like Nirvana, you know, Michael Aspel, Kenny Everett, Graham Dean, Nicky Horn, Mike Allen, God rest his soul. I mean, I feel I fear myself tingling when I say those people. Roger Scott, my hero, Mike Smith, um, um, Adrian Love. Who I was, who I was assigned to once at the 1979 Capital Jazz Festival at Ali Pali, where there was BB King and Stefan Grappelli and Chuck Berry and all those people, and I was on stage. I had I had to keep Adrian away from the Perno bus. Now I was I was 17 or 16 or something. What the hell did I know about drinking and all that? You know, I didn't really, apart from I did it badly, and uh, and Adrian was on stage at one of the stages or the stage at, at Ali Pali and I was behind I was I was at the back of the stage 
And he went, um, you want some more, you bastards? You come back tomorrow. This is in front of Chuck Berry, who just finished his set. And um, and then the bottles rained and, and Adrian, Chuck Berry and I had to run. And there's no pictures. There's no pictures. <laughs> That's amazing. We're having a park. So we we touched on consultants there and management, mm. and um, I think you uh, you did something which very few have done. You actually resigned face to face with Richard Park, <laughs> and then burst into tears. Oh, did you? I mean, oh, he terrified what, me. What, terrified I mean, tell me, me. Tell me why, and tell me your experience of that, because very few human beings would do that. Well, you've got to remember, I was staff. I was an assistant producer. So I wasn't a jock. I was a jock. I think I got paid £40 a show for doing the early show in London. Uh, I remember I remember negotiating it with Sue Davis and going, oh, she was head of personnel and she did the contract. She said, darling, it'll be 20. OK, it'll be 40. Um, anyways, we did that. Management change. And Sir Richard Attenborough. Oh, that man. I remember, <laughs> I remember once I was having a pee. And Dickie came into the toilet. And the night before, I'd been watching 10 Rillington Place, which, as you all may know, is a story about John Christie. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, Dickie played him. And I was in the loo, and I was like, I'm standing next to John Christie. I said, oh, my God. It was just Dickie with his... You know. Anyway, so that was... Um, but I remember he, he gathered us all in what they called the playpen, and Dickie had this presence. And, of course, he'd started Capital, and he just raised his hands, he went, My darlings! And we all burst into tears! <laughs> Such was the effect that man had. Just amazing. You know, this is a man that directed Gandhi, you know, just stunning. Anyway, uh, and from that point, and he brought Richard Park in, and, uh, darlings, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be lovely, lovely, don't worry. So we, we were all like, okay, there's a man coming in. And you know. anyway, he came in. And I think from day one, there was terror, absolute terror. And I remember him getting all the jocks who were on the station in, in a revolving door basis, including me. <laughs> I mean, I, I was very much at the end of the day. I waited for the, for the, for the audience, you know. And uh, I can't remember what the conversation was, you know. He said, how's it going? And I said something to the effect of, well, I think you could be nicer to people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> but he was terrifying. He said to me once, I was, I was talking to somebody or other, Johnny Walker or somebody, because it was a day, uh, Johnny Walker was there, I think, and people... And he's like, talk is non-productive. You get back to your desk. <laughs> what a scary dude he was. Oh, and then 1988 came, and then this job came up at British Forces Broadcasting. It was the week my grandmother had died, and I went in and uh, I, I just I resigned, basically. But then, as I say, I was a member of staff, you know, and I don't remember the conversation. I just said, um, I need to leave um, because um, I've got a job as a disc jockey and I am... Um, I mean, I was 27, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So 
Tell me, Jonathan, I mean, you, you will have dealt with a lot of celebrities in your career. What, what, what was your worst situation with a celeb? Oh, God. Um, I, when I say celeb, I was interviewing a guy about carbon footprints when I was at the BBC, and I was a bit like, oh, whatever. And um, because I hadn't prepped properly, I realised in this interview that his brother created the internet, what? So we're halfway through the interview and he's talking about carbon footprint. And I've just realised your brother created the internet. So, you know, and, and he said, I'm not here to talk about it. I'm talking about my brother. Uh, move on. I was like, okay, you. And then there was a, a lady who is a wonderful actress. Wonderful actress. But awful, awful interviewee, for me anyway. She played Madame Pomfrey in Harry Potter. And I said to her, she was there to talk about Spooks, the BBC TV show. And I said at one point, oh, it must have been marvellous to be in Harry Potter. And she said, yes. <laughs> and that was that. And then there was the, the, the final, the, the, I suppose my final memorable one. Oh, that's right, Alastair Campbell. <laughs> I was. I remember. I was in the office. I was terrified. I was going to do down the line with Alistair Campbell, and uh, and I went. I don't know that about politics. I'm small and gay and naive. He went. Shape up, man. Do they even allow your sort up there? <laughs> he was. He was brilliant. He was absolutely lovely to me. And because I wasn't, shall we say, John Sopel or somebody was pointed, you know, in my style because I wasn't. He gave me an awful lot. We're having a party. So then you moved on to a few more commercial stations and then you went to what some consider as the dark side. You went to the BBC, something which I have done as well. And 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 for somebody like yourself who's spent so much time in commercial, mm. I mean, how did you find the experience at the BBC? Because <laughs> you were there for BBC Newcastle. You were there for some time, Jonathan. Mm. Yeah, seven and a half years. Everybody had always said... Oh, darling, you're, you're so BBC Local Radio. That's where you should go. BBC Local Radio. People had always said that all my career. So I was I was on the air at Time FM in South London one day, and uh, I got an email from this, and I was literally on the air, and this email popped up. Bing! I've still got it. Hi, I'm. my name's Andrew Robson. I'm reorganising uh, BBC Newcastle. Would you be interested in a chat? Long story short, I think what had happened, um, my very close uh, personal friend, Neil Greenslade, who I met at GWR, uh, who now runs Nation Broadcasting, he had spoken to the lovely Cancerian consultant, Jim Hicks, unbeknownst to me. And uh, Andrew had said, I'm looking for people. And Jim Hicks had said, ah. And they'd had a listen. And apparently I can tell a good story. And that led to an audition where <laughs> but I went up and I'd never been... No, I'd been to Newcastle years before, that's right. And I was like, oh, my God, BBC, oh, my God, Pink Palace, oh, my God. And um, and I took over from a very, very well-renowned name in the northeast, Frank Whoppet. I did some shows for his son Paul a while ago uh, on Memory Lane Radio, which is out of uh, the northeast. So Frank was on, and his signature tune was "I'll be BBCing you," and it was really, really in the style of 1940, you know. And it was "Good night, everybody. 
and I was standing in the other studio, and, he, and Frank was lovely to me, and I was like, what? Anyway, I went on and I did my thing, and ultimately I got the job in the October of 2007, and they said to me, okay, they said it's quite simple. Uh, first hour will be review of the papers. Second hour will be ask the expert. Third hour will be a quiz. And immediately I got there, having signed my contract under bloody retrograde mercury, things <laughs> changed. Never sign a contract under retrograde mercury, ever, because the, the, the ballpark will change. And it changed because they just had the Blue Peter scandal where there'd been vote rigging or something. I can't remember. Do you, you work there. You remember? There's, there's quite, quite a lot going on, wasn't there, at the same time? And then there was the Jonathan Ross thing. Anyway, all the rules about local radio changed, so there was no competition. To and I was, I was like, where am I? What am I doing? I was given this producer who quite obviously thought I was shit on her shoe, and she just looked down her nose. I remember the first link I did when I got the morning show, um, turning round and... The look on her face, I mean, not that I'd said anything particularly, but anyway, was I, I just and I just said, is there a problem? And, and she said, no, 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 it's just my face. Anyway, it was quite... <laughs> after doing this for a month or something, she was summarily taken off because uh, it was clear we didn't get on and she was never going to want to, you know, anyway. And then I had the lovely Helen Amos as a producer who was a bit like a mummy for me. And because it's all very camp, you know, I had a producer, I called her, and she had, she always wore ballet shoes. And she was, you know, comfortable clothes. And there was raps and things going on, you know. I'm, 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 I'm putting on a kimono or whatever they do. And uh, I used to call her executive producer mummy lady, um, Sarah Miller, who the shit she listened to from me over time. God bless that woman. I love her so much. Um, so Sarah Miller was my executive producer. And um, I think the initial question is, how did I find it? Culture shock. Complete and utter culture shock. I don't think at the time they had met anyone like me before. Not that I am outrageous, but I'd never had a problem in commercial radio. Ever. Ever. And I'd just been, I think, mostly accepted. I'd been sent up a bit for, you know, or I send myself up. But they couldn't handle the fact that I was so, I'll, I'll say flamboyant, um, at all. And I remember the one of the sports presenters saying to me once, uh, it's all an act, isn't it? It's all an act. I'm like, no, this is who I am. They couldn't, they just couldn't handle it. Um, and um, it took me three years to be comfortable there. And the tears and the tantrums and, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, do I cry? Yes. Have I cried in the office? Yes, I have. I'm, I am, despite my bravado, a sensitive soul. But I, it was a real difficult transition. Had I been sat down initially and told, and uh, he may have done this, I can't remember. But, you know, this is going to be totally different from anything you've ever done. It is going to take a long time to accept you. But, but because what he wanted when he hired me was for some showbiz slash campery in the office because it needed jizzing up in his view. And not long after I joined, maybe a year, maybe 18 months, maybe less, um, 
BBC News, like the Death Star, came in and took over local radio. Um, so whatever it was under before, and you may know better than me, was it entertainment? I can't remember. But um, if it was general entertainment, if it was being looked after by, should we say, BBC Entertainment, fine. But news took over. And it, I really felt it. It was like one October, or maybe I'm wrong. And from then, I had to be a journalist. And I... I was like, well, darling, I just talk. I it was just, well, what's all this prep? What, 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 do you, what do you mean I've got to type? And also they, they, they never said to me in the very beginning, right, uh, can you edit? Because I couldn't at that point. Had they done that for the beginning, you know, it would have, it would have been difficult, I'm sure, but that's what they should have done. Because I was just there to mince in and mince out. And the producer did everything else. <laughs> and the producers had such a job. A, because they had to manage this person me and b because of the amount of content they had to do over three hours i remember helen amos doing this very intricate and and brilliant piece once on uh grandparents not being able to see their children nobody text and nobody rang and i just thought this you know it was a great piece fine you know because that was kind of audience that they were trying trying to attract um I, it was probably put down to my of course, inability to, you know, bring people in. But there were people listening. We knew that. Um, so it was a very strange place um, for me. And then I, want, then I went on the foundation journalism course yep. for a week. And it was a difficult time for me because I was, I, I was suffering badly from anxiety and God knows what else at that time. And... Uh, so uh, the boss said, I'm, I'm going to give you two weeks off. You can have a week off and then go on this course or wh whichever way it worked. And I went on this foundation journalism course. I was like, oh, okay. And when I came back, it was like everything fitted into place and it, I was suddenly accepted. It was bizarre, but it took three years. And I always said, I've been chipped, darling. I've been chipped. I'm now part of the team. I, I am led to believe John Myers did a, a report on BBC Local Radio saying what it was or what it should be. And I think they just put it in a drawer and ignored it. John Myers, when I got let go of, somebody tweeted, oh, Jonathan Myers has been fired. And John Myers, and we didn't really know each other, but God bless him, he tweeted, there's a great difference in being fired and not having your contract renewed. So thank you, Mr. Myers. But it was a very strange time. But I did some great things and I met some great people. And I think in hindsight, um, my producers, Jane and Joe and Gemma and Vicky Sparks, who now works um, for BBC Sport, they, they tried their best, you know, but I wasn't used to working in that way. I did, some, I did some amazing things, thanks to them, but it was a very strange place. Culture shock. Yeah, it was total culture shock. You know, but the northeast, wonderful place. Let's just talk about what you're doing now. So you mentioned uh, previously Made in Kent and also United DJs as well, Jonathan. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I will say that that since I left the Beeb in in 2015, things have changed so much, and I thought, ha, I've got the BBC on my CV, I could get a job. Well, that was wrong, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I tried to get a job and, and couldn't. I was like, oh, okay. And then in 2015, a well-known electrical shop uh, said to me, um, come and work for us, you can talk. 
and and I've been there ever since, bizarrely. Most accepted I've ever been anywhere. You know, there's none of this, oi, pufta, oi, oh, bender, oi, you know, because those things I've had and, you know, it was the 80s, it was the 90s, you just put up with it, you laughed it off and we all laughed and nobody was nasty, you know, don't get me wrong, you know. I, but anyway, this place, I now work the shop and um, they've been amazing. You know, tell you, my boss, um, who is no longer there um, at this large shop, when I had prostate cancer in 2019, he came round with two huge chocolate cakes the day after I came out of hospital. You know, I mean, just amazing. And I know it is minimum wage, but they do pay, I think, the most that anybody does. So, you know, they've been amazing. So I'm, I'm currently a shop girl much to my amazement, because my life wasn't supposed to work like this. Um, and um, after a little while, UDJs came along, and I did a show a week, which took me a week to produce, because I could suddenly pick music. And and being part of DMC and some of the people that were there, Laurie Holloway, the great um, uh, music, music man was there, and... Um, loads of people. And I got introduced to all sorts of music, like Winoni Harris from the 40s, 50s, um, and Big Joe Turner, uh, and and all sorts of other bits of bits I'd never in my life, because once I left Capital, I stopped meeting music pluggers, because I was an assistant producer for a while, or a T-boy, or whatever I was, PA. And, you know, you'd get everything come in late 80s. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. But at UDJs, they've got such a wealth of, uh, or at DMC, they've got such a wealth of music. So I did that for, and it lasted about three years. And then Tony um, had, Tony's uh, wife, God bless her, is not the wellest. So he stopped UDJs, unfortunately. And then um, Matt James, who was on Capital Disney for a while, I think I'm right in saying that, um, he has a company called the Creation Lab, which is a digital marketing agency. And he called me in 2021 and he said, I'm starting this thing and da 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 and we're going to pay a bit and da 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 And uh, it is basically servicing uh, Kent businesses. So I've now been there a year as we, as we speak. I do Monday to Wednesday, nine till midnight. Um, it's voice tracked, but I think it, sounds okay i think it does you know i'm a bit too self-critical for my own good to be honest well jonathan um yes i mean i haven't got your number personally could i get your number personally because for the last however long we've been chatting i've decided that if i'm ever down i'm just going to call you because you will cheer me up <laughs> because I, I genuinely you you're just a you've you're just a lovely lovely person thank so you. um thank you so much uh, for agreeing to be on our podcast, Crunch and Roll. That, it, it is, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Crunch and Roll with me, Jonathan Miles. God, why did you listen? Now you know everything. Uh, subscribe on your favourite podcast app to get every new episode as soon as it drops. Crunch and Roll is a 969 media production presented by the lovely John Fox, who's a Scorpio, and produced by the even more adorable Cancerian, who is Simon Boshofsky. Oh, yeah. Can I just say we also had a lot of sex in Euston Tower? Thank you. Um... <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.